Good morning, church family. On this uh, Sunday is our final sermon in our series of the book of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to ask you to take them and turn with me uh, one final time to the book of Isaiah, <clears throat> at least as a, as a church body. Uh, I mean, you always look at it every once in a while. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 7 to 24 is what will be this morning. Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 24. I'm going to look at the, all the way from verse 7 to the end of the book. Uh, again, a, a warm welcome to those of you who are guests and visitors with us today. Thank you for joining us, whether you're from around the world. Uh, glad to have you with us, or a little bit, a little further, uh, maybe in this, within the state, or even locally. Glad to have you uh, with us, joining us to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. As a, uh, we, as a Church of Jesus Christ, are just glad to have the privilege to have you join us. It's our desire to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to share with others how they can follow Christ. Uh, to know who the Savior uh, of ours who died on the cross for our sins and to live our lives uh, following after our Savior. And so I'm uh, glad you're here this morning. As we, and part of that is through the study of God's Word. And we've been, uh, as our practice, just been preaching through God's Word. And it's been a blessing to go through the book of Isaiah. It's probably one of those, uh, if you've been with us the last three and a half years, it's one of those once-in-a-lifetime things. I doubt you will ever go to another church, or if you stay here at least, uh, you're going to hear Isaiah preached throughout again. Uh, not going to happen, probably. Uh, there's so many other books of the Bible that we will want to get to. Uh, but perhaps you go to another church, you might hear Isaiah preached again. Uh, but may it be a blessing to you. Hopefully you have been blessed, and if you are curious, you're always welcome to go online and re-listen, re-listen to all the sermons again, uh, 65 of them, I believe. Anyways, uh, the, on this, uh, uh, we're going to read verses 7 through 24, and before we read the text, let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for our time and your word. Thank you that we can open up your book once again. Lord, this is, these are your words, not the words of men. Father, we pray that as we read your word, hear your word, study your word, may you cause us to understand what it means, not only in the day that it was written from, from uh, at the hand of Isaiah to your people, my Lord, that you would understand its meaning, its particular application to your people today who live on this earth. And we pray that as we look to your word, cause us to understand your purpose, your plan, uh, your vision for this world, and that that would, be, uh, that, that would grip us, that would cause us to affect how we live here and now uh, for your glory and for your kingdom. We ask that you would uh, particularly cause us to uh, uh, focus upon you as we hear your word, and we pray that you would be glorified as we respond to your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As many of you know, Isaiah is uh, one of the books of the prophecy. It is one of the major prophets, the first of the major prophets. And like all prophetic books, uh, Isaiah, like the rest, have basically a, a... a dual role of foretelling the future as well as foretelling people what God says or what God thinks. And generally, we've learned that, uh, or we learned a little while ago, that all prophetic books share four uh, common themes, four common themes. I just want to quickly review them for you. Generally, prophetic books in the Bible share the following four themes. First of all, they expose the sinful practices of the people. And so uh, they will basically point out people's sin. Secondly, they will, the prophetical books call the people to repentance and obedience. They call them to turn away from sin and to obey what God has said. Thirdly, prophetical books also warn people 
of coming judgment. If you do not turn, then there's always a warning. This is what will happen if you do not turn from sin. And fourthly, all prophetic books share in common an anticipation, a hope of a coming Messiah when he will come and will save his people and will judge the world. And as we have studied Isaiah, Isaiah is no exception. We've seen all four of these themes, not just once or twice, but throughout the book. We've seen how Isaiah exposed the idolatry, the injustice, and the unfaithfulness of Israel, though God was their covenant God. Isaiah has called out to rebellious Israel to turn away from sin and to walk in obedience to God, to seek him, the Lord, while he may be found. Isaiah has warned Israel of the coming judgment that will take place upon them if they do not repent. And Isaiah has offered hope and comfort and consolation at the coming of the Messianic servant, the Messiah. As you and I know, especially as many of us Christians here, we know that the Messiah did come. He came some 2,000 years ago. He came and walked upon the Jerusalem, um, Israel. And then when he came, the surprising thing is that it was revealed in the New Testament that he did not come to, at that point, to judge the world. But what did he come to do? He came to the world that the world might be saved through him. And what he did when he came is that he poured out himself to death on the cross for the sins of his people. And since his death and resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven with the promise of returning again. And then it has been 2,000 years. And as of today, he has not yet come back. And after 2,000 years, I think we can all confess that sometimes it is easy for us as the followers of Jesus Christ, the followers of God, to live in a way or to live in a way practically that almost isn't expecting him to come back. Sure, if you ask us, is Jesus coming back? Oh, yes, Jesus is coming back. But we live our lives in a way as if he is not coming back. We sometimes tend to become more concerned about the temporal things of this life rather than the eternal things. We, for instance, uh, if I talked about a judge this past week, more of you are probably aware of a particular human judge rather than the eternal judge who will judge all the living and the dead. Many ways, a lot of us are this week, if you thought about what you're saving for, what you're working for, a lot of us might have been thinking about, oh, I'm saving for retirement rather than saving treasures for eternity. More often, we are more just caught up in the busyness of life, caught up in what we might call our own kingdoms, rather than God's kingdom. Yes, I hope we can all admit that we, at times, in the business of life, or probably, in particular, we, we forget of the reality that Christ is coming. We, or we don't live as if he is coming back soon. <clears throat> and though we may live like that, make no mistake, the scriptures are clear that he is coming back again. And he has already come once to save, but when he comes again, he will come to judge the world of our sins. He will come to save Israel, to judge the world, and to establish his kingdom of peace, just as he promised. And in this final passage of Isaiah, we are going to learn that the time is coming. That's the title of the sermon this morning. The time is coming for all of God's promises of salvation to come to pass. 
You know, a lot of us have watches. You know, it's a person that tends to watch the watch. You know, usually you think, oh, what are you looking at your watch for, right? It's, oh, new text message, okay. But no, you're looking at it because there's a time on there, and you kind of look at, well, oh, because something's coming up soon. We look at a watch because we're expecting, oh, it's 1230, I've got to end by then so I can go to lunch. Or we look at a watch because, oh, it's 8 o'clock, I better get out of the door and go to work. We look at our watches because it reminds us that the time is coming. You know, I would hope that next time you look at your watch, you remember this phrase, the time is coming. And as certain as you look at your watch because there's some appointment that you have, that the next time you look at your watch, you say, you know what? The time is coming for the Lord to return. Yes, we don't have the time. I know that. Okay, but just bear with me. It's an illustration. The time is coming. As certain as the next appointment is coming on your schedule, that Jesus Christ will come again. And that's what this passage today is going to do for us. It's like causing us to look at our watch and say, time's coming. Jesus is coming back. And knowing that the time is coming should change how we live here and now. As much as we look at our watch and say, oh, I got to get going. Oh, I got to do this. I got to prepare for that meeting. It should change how we live here and now. As we look to verses 7 to 24 this, uh, of this final chapter, we're going to see basically a, a, a four-point outline, a fourfold summary of God's salvation plan that the Lord's coming will bring to pass. Four things that are going to come to pass when the Lord returns. These are all kind of just a, a picture of revelation of God, a vision that God gives us of what's going to happen in the future. So let's take a look then at these four points. First of all, number one, point number one, The time is coming for the Lord's deliverance of Israel. The time is coming for the Lord's deliverance of Israel. Uh, Throughout Isaiah, particularly Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1 to 6, we've seen the the sinful hypocrisy of Israel. We've seen their sin manifest in many ways. And and sometimes when... uh, when at least when I know when I was a young Christian, I used to think that I used to hear and think that oh, you know, that uh, once Israel, because they rejected their Savior, basically they're left out. They're, God's basically replaced them, or they're no longer in part of God's plans. God has now turned only to the Gentiles, so anyone else, everyone else in the world who believes, yes, Jews can be included in that, but anyone who can believe, that's God's plan. Now he's focused on the Gentiles, and almost as if there's no return to Israel. But there is, make no mistake, a future for Israel. Uh, this book is written, Isaiah 66. You can't interpret it and just say, every time you see Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, and say, oh, that's the Christians. It's a reference to Israel. Ask any Jewish person that. They'd probably tell you, yeah, that's referring to Jewish people. But God is revealing here her future deliverance, a future salvation of Israel. Not just deliverance from physical harm, but deliverance from their sin. Remember, as early as chapter 1, God was not shy to point out Israel's sin, Isaiah 1, 4. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Israel was consistently, regularly sinful and would turn away and be unfaithful to their Lord. And though she was often unfaithful to the Lord, we learned that the Lord is not faithful. The Lord is not unfaithful to her. He is faithful to her. God's promise of deliverance, of salvation of Israel, is pictured in these verses in 7 through 14. Using an Im- the imagery of something that is universally familiar. At least all of us 
most people are universally familiar with, and that is the imagery of a mother, an imagery of a mother. In verses 7 to 9, we're going to look at, he used the imagery of a mother giving birth, a mother giving birth. And let's read verse 7. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? Or shall I, who give, gives delivery, shut the womb, says your God? Uh, the Lord makes the point here that the salvation and restoration of Israel will take place suddenly, unexpectedly. It's even it's a, as if the, the birth happens before the pain, the birth pains even come. More importantly, though, it will take place inevitably. God says that he will not bring the nation to the point of birth or to the being born again and not give delivery. The nation of Israel will one day experience being born again. Now, some might think of this rebirth of Israel as being fulfilled when Israel returned from captivity. They, went to, they were taken to captivity in Babylon, and then 70 years later, they returned under the, the, the decree of the Persian king Cyrus. Or even some may think of this as being fulfilled when uh, the modern state of Israel was born on May 14, 1948. Can you imagine what it was like for 2,000 years that there was no nation of Israel? It was just, uh, I think, it was a British Empire for a bread of the British Empire for a while. But May 14, 1948, unexpectedly, of all things, the nation of Israel was reborn. And that's an amazing testimony to the power of God's preservation of his people and that he would bring about even the, the restoration of that land as a, as a political entity. But that's not what's referred to here. That's not that rebirth, as significant as that was. Though, because those events, the return of Israel from Babylon, the return, the creation of the, of the, Israel, the state of Israel, those events did not coincide with the coming of the Lord as well as the other promises related to God's salvation plan. One day, all Israel will be born again. They will come to be delivered, just as sure as a, a mother will give birth to her child. In verse 10 to 14, God moves on to the imagery of a, of a mother nurturing her child. And we read this uh, description of that, of that time, in ver- of that future time in verse 10 to 14. Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts, that you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed, you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad, and your bones will flourish like the new grass, and the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but he will be indignant toward his enemies. The key repeated themes here in these uh, verses is this idea of joy, gladness, glad, as well as the theme of comfort, consolation, encouragement, or peace is the idea. 
See, the Lord promises in that day for Israel, not only will they be saved, but they will experience exceeding joy and comfort. And he uses the picture of a nursing child. When is those of you that have had children recently, you are your son, or even those of us that had children, we understand, you remember the the imagery of a nursing child. When is a nursing child most happy? When he or she is near her mother and being fed by her mother, right? Because if they're hungry, they're just crying, they're crying, and it's, daddy ain't going to help. But the nursing mom, mom comes alongside, that child is happy, content. So much so that while feeding, she will, he or she will feel so secure, so comforted by uh, the, the feeding of, and the nearness of the mother, that the child will what? That's when they fall asleep, even. That's the picture of what Israel will experience when God delivers them one day. They will experience comfort. They will experience peace. They will experience joy like no other. And if you look at Israel right now, there is no joy. There is no comfort. There is no peace for them because the Lord has not returned to deliver them. She will thrive. One day she will thrive and flourish at the mighty hand of the Lord. And how will this come all about? When the Lord returns. Remember Isaiah 40, verse 1 to 3. The, the chapter that begins this whole second half of Isaiah that with the theme of the comfort of God. Comfort, oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. See, the key and comfort to our... And, to, of her comfort and deliverance is the coming of the Lord. When he comes, when Christ returns, he will save her from her sins and from her enemies. And that's, that's what verse 7 to 14 describe. And the time is coming for that, when the Lord returns and all Israel will be saved. As we turn to the verses 15 to 17, and the focus of the rest of our time, particularly the rest of our time in the latter half of this passage, the time is also coming. For the Lord's coming to judge. Yes, he's going to come and deliver Israel, but the Lord's also coming to judge. Verse 15 to 17 uh, will describe for us another one of the many running themes throughout Isaiah. Is that it is God's intention to judge. He will judge Israel, and he will judge the world. Remember as early even as chapter 1, God promised judgment upon sinful Israel. Transgressions and sinners will be crushed together. Those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. But the, his judgment was not limited just to Israel. His ju- judgment would extend to everyone. Isaiah 2.12, For the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning. That's the day of judgment, the day of the Lord. Against everyone who is proud and lofty. Against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be abased. See, there is a day that is set in the future. A day when the Christ returns. A day that is set for everyone who is proud and lifted up. Everyone who would boast before the Lord. Everyone who would think that, Lord, I deserve to be saved. Or, like, I don't need to be saved. Or, I'm so good, I don't need to even believe in God. A day for those who deny the existence of God, who deny that they are sinners, who deny that they're in need of a Savior, who is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. There is a day set for those who would boast in themselves, who think, this is why I'm such a good guy. I'm such a great preacher. I'm such a good do-gooder. That's why I should be saved. There's a day set aside for all who would boast, all who would be proud, and it's a day of judgment. That day is coming. 
All who would say, I know better than what God says in his word. My way of life is better than what God's way of life is in his word. And that's the death. And this, this judgment is coming upon all prideful men and women. And if that's, and if that's you, know that this judgment is coming. The time is coming. Verse 15 says, let's look at this judgment. For behold, verse 15, the Lord will come in fire. And his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh. And those slain by the Lord will be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens, following one in the center, who eat swine's flesh, detestable things and mice, will come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. Verse 15 reminds us that the consummation of all things, that is, the deliverance of Israel and the judgment of the Lord, will take place because the Lord will come. It says right there, verse 15, Behold, the Lord will come. You can just underline that and know that and just put it on your uh, calendar and say, the time's coming. The time is coming when he will come in fire. And this, this fire and like, this chariots like whirlwind. These are imagery that speaks of the furiousness of his judgment, the fury of the judgment. It's, his judgment is like a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24 speaks of the Lord your God as being a consuming fire, a jealous God. I know for many of us, we like to think of God as a loving God, and he is that. We sung about God's love. The love of God manifests in his son, Jesus Christ. But God is more than just loving. He is also a God that is holy, a God who is just, a God who is a God of wrath, or here it's described even a God of anger. And as a holy God, every sin that we commit is an act of rebellion against his holy character. Because it's a sin against an infinite God, our sin as an act of rebellion deserves an infinite punishment. Every one of us, that's what the scripture says, every one of us falls short of his glory. We fall short of his perfect standard. Even with our first sin that we ever commit, we committed that a long time ago for the majority of us in this room, for all of us in this room. For that first sin, we deserve God's immediate and eternal judgment. In fact, Scripture tells us that we're already judged because of our sin, because we not believed in him. We deserve God's judgment, but does God judge us? Does God send us immediately to hell? No, he doesn't. God is merciful to us. He withholds his wrath. He does so to be gracious, as a loving God, a merciful God, as a patient God. Why? Because he does not wish for anyone to perish, but that all might come to believe in him. But on the day that he comes, the day the Lord returns, he will come to render his anger. He will execute judgment by fire and by sword and by his sword on all flesh. This terminology will find uh, this similar terminology is found in Revelation 19, verse 11, 21. There we've looked at it before, but it's a description of when Christ returns, when the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings comes back from heaven, and he's riding on that white horse, and he's dressed in that robe that's stained with, with the wine press, wine press of God's wrath. When he comes, it would listen to the description, it's a very similar word. In righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Uh, the judgment is coming. 
the day of judgment. When God, when the Lord returns, he will come and bring judgment. Verse 17 reveals that judgment is coming because of the idolatry of mankind. Because we've, we've there's a this particular description here of some of the idolatrous practices that were common in those days. But what we find here, what's significant here, is that the, at the, we learned here that what is at the heart of all idolatry. The heart of all idolatry is this, that man follows some other God in the center of their lives. It talks about here a description, particularly when people go to the gardens. They've sanctified, periods, go to the gardens, places of where they would do the idol worship. There was something in the center, something that they focused on in their worship. And that center of the focus of worship would not be God, but it would be a pole, it would be a man, be some idol, but it would be nothing, anything but God. The crux is that it is not the Lord. And when the Lord is not in the center of our worship, of our focus, it is idolatry. It's a piercing application for all of us today. Here we are, we've all gathered in our, our finest Sunday clothes, or less, well, at least decent Sunday clothes. And I've come, we've, we've, we're come seeking to sanctify and purify ourselves through the, the discipline of worship. But then we must make sure who is at the center of our worship. Is it, is it, a, is it ourselves? Is it, is it a man? Is it the pastor? Is it the, the preacher? Do you walk out here and say, oh man, Pastor Ham was so great. He's a fantastic dude. Oh, that would be a shame. Or is it our worship leader? Oh, man, did you hear that note that Stephen sang? Sweet. Is it a focus of ourselves? Oh, man, that was so good. It was so good for me. I really had a wonderful time. I I talked to so many friends. It was so great. I got got to that girl's number. You know, I was like, oh, this is awesome. (laughs) Confession, that's, uh, I went to church early on, live for girls, yeah. But that is a false worship, a worship that is not centered upon God. It ought to be the Lord. Lord ought to be the center of our worship. But the time is coming that the Lord will come to judge. He's coming to judge the world. It's going to begin with Israel, but he's also going to extend that to the nations of the earth. And at the beginning of verse 18, he tells us that the Lord knows our works and thoughts. We can come on Sunday. We can all go through the right motions. It's hard to see our hearts. Once you actually spend time with each other and kind of talk to each other and hear what's on our hearts and minds. But the Lord knows. God knows. And this introduces a third point, that the time is coming. When the Lord comes, the time is coming for the Lord's glory among the nations. One day, God's glory is going to be spread throughout all the nations of this earth. Everyone's going to know about God's glory, the glory of God that is manifest in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at these verses, 18 21, they're pretty critical. They're, 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 they're pretty fantastic. But it's challenging to interpret because they, you can differ because of who you interpret or identify as the various pronouns here. There's a bunch of third-person plural pronouns, them, they. And each time you read it, you're kind of like, who is them, who is they? Now, who is referred to these things? And so as I do that, I want to walk through it. I'll, I'll try to point those out because I just think it's just a fantastic, just encouraging interpretation when we get it right. Verse 14, and we begin this. For the, we see how the Lord's glory among the nations is going to be spread. For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And so you see already uh, at least three different 
third-person pronouns, plural pronouns. But you remember in the previous verse, God has been addressing those Israelites who have been caught up in idolatry. So the Lord knows their works and their thoughts. There's nothing they can hide from the Lord. And their judgment will be furious, swift, and just. And so the Lord says, the time is coming then to gather all nations and tongues. That's not some charismatic tongues. That's a different language, another different language of the earth. So there's all these people who speak different languages, who come from different political, geographical uh, nations and political nations. They're all going to be gathered where? Probably Jerusalem. The idea is Jerusalem. They're going to come to gather where the Lord is. And they will come and see the Lord's glory. One day, God says he's going to bring all the nations together. In contrast to uh, those, the Israelites that he's judged, he's going to bring all the nations of the earth together to see God's glory. And the implication is that they will see his glory and they'll worship him. We've seen this, uh, this imagery, of, or not this, this prophecy of the nations coming to the Lord in Isaiah chapter 2, as early as Isaiah chapter 2. And we read it in our call to worship this morning. And it talks about how people will basically, well, all the nations are going to go. They're going to stream to the mountain of God, to Jerusalem, Zion. And they're going to say, let's go up there to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God. So that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. It's going to be wonderful because all the nations are going to go there. And they're going to hear that God might teach them his ways. You know, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and you know what? I'm not going to be preaching anymore. That's going to be wonderful because the Lord will be teaching. You're going to learn from him his ways. That's going to be fantastic. Every sermon is going to be a fantastic sermon. Everything's going to walk away. Oh, yes, amen. I repent and believe. You know, or, well, you are repent and believe by then. But it's going to be such amazing truth that you will, you will be encouraged by God's word. You'll learn to walk in his ways. And that time is coming. That's spoken throughout Isaiah. So throughout the rest of these next couple of verses, there are two groups that we could we are considering. There is the group of Israelites, the Israelites whom, uh, that are mentioned, as well as the nations. And in verse 19, though the nations are the closer reference, God is speaking here, referring to the Israelites. He says, I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. And that's the clue that this is referring to Israel, to the Israelites. These are survivors from the, the judgment of God, that he's gonna, judgment that he's going to place upon those Israelites whom he's judged. Those who are basically faithful to God, who are not judged by the Lord for their idolatry, but they have been, were believing in him, and so they will have survived his judgment. And God will set a sign among them and then send them out to the nations. So that's why it's not survivors from the nations to the nations. They're already in the nations. So this is the survivors from the Israelites those who were, who were judged by the Lord, and then sent to the nations. Nations such as Tarshish, Put, Lud, Meshach, Tubal, and Javan. But they will all be sent to the, also be sent to the distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they, that is these Israelites, these faithful remnant of Israel, will declare God's glory among the nations. God is basically fulfilling uh, the Abrahamic covenant in this. Remember the Abrahamic covenant? God promised Abraham he will bless his descendants, and through, his, through that blessing, those who are blessed, his descendants would then be a blessing upon all the families of the earth. 
And that's just not, not just that through them Jesus Christ came. That's part of it. That's, the, that's a major part of it. But there's an element where through Israel, all the nations would come to hear. And, and here we see that the remnant believing uh, uh, Israelites will be sent out by God to tell others about all the nations about the glory of God. That's how they're going to hear about the glory of God. And that's why they're going to believe. And that's why they're going to go to Jerusalem to see for themselves. And when the nations go to see the glory of God for themselves, they will not go empty-handed. Look at verse 20 with me. Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and litters on mules and on camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Now, some see in this verse... In this verse where it says, they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations. Is a, this, some see in this, in this verse a reference to basically the nations, Gentiles becoming brothers in Christ, who will then return to Jerusalem. And there's no doubt that that is, that is a truth. That is, believers in Jesus Christ, those who have, we've seen it in, previous vast, in the previous verses already, in Christ, Gentiles are going to, uh, can be saved as well. They're going to be spiritual brothers with believing Jews. And there are even some good points that we could probably look at this text and that would point to the possibility that this is a reference to the nations becoming brothers. All the brothers and sisters from, in Christ that are from all the nations are going to return with the grain offering. And while that's, it is a possible interpretation, I believe that the verse here is best understood as a reference to the, returning, to the return of believing Jews. To those who have been scattered, the diaspora, the Israelites who have been scattered throughout the world today. And why do I believe that? Because this has been a theme in the rest of Isaiah. In three prior passages, uh, I threw up there for you, God has promised that the nations would one day bring back the sons and daughters of Israel that have been scattered among the nations. Uh, not, even that, not only that, but what's more, the five other times this word uh, that's used for brethren in you, when used in Isaiah has been used of literal brothers, uh, never of spiritual brothers, as it is in, uh, sometimes in the New Testament. So what is going to happen is that Gentiles will bring believing Jews to the Lord. They're going to bring back those that have been scattered. They're going to bring them back as, uh, to, as an offering to the Lord to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they might join in the worship of God. And they will bring them back like an offering, just like the offerings that the Israelites would offer to the Lord, the grain offering that's referred to here. And so as a result of that, then in verse 21, a most stunning thing is going to take place that reveals the, the, the amazing extent of God's glory upon the nations. Verse 21, look at it. I will, God says, I will also take some of them for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. It's interesting, I've studied, read a bunch of commentaries, and commentaries are basically 50-50 on this. <laughs> they disagree on whether the pronoun them here refers to Israelites, to the remnant Israel, those who come back, or does it refer to the nations? Is this, uh, is this basically those who are Israelites who come back, they give me, some of them are going to be priests and Levites to serve in the rebuilt millennial t- temple? I do not think so. I believe this is a reference to the nations. Because Isaiah 61.6 says this. In God, when speaking to, Isaiah, to Israelites, says, You will be called the priests of the Lord. 
You will be spoken of as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of nations and the riches you will boast. God has already promised Israel that they are going to become a kingdom of priests. That's a fulfillment of Exodus 19.6. The whole nation of Israel is going to be, have a priesthood, a role as a priest. So in the light of the context, as well as the fact that he says, I will also, he's already taken Israelites to be priests and Levites. He's also going to take some of the Gentiles, some of these nations who come to him, and he's going to make them priests and Levites serving him in the service of the rebuilt millennial, ten- rebuilt millennial temple. And in this way, the glory of the Lord will be made fully manifest among the nations. The glory of the Lord will shine upon them and will now save them, will gather them, and will transform them and call them to serve him before him forever. All this will take place when the Lord comes again. His light and his glory will shine not just upon Israel, but will shine upon the nations of the earth, and it will change the world. We are reminded of this. This is simply uh, Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 2. Arise, shine, for your light has come, speaking of the Messiah, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. God's light is going to shine on this earth. His glory is going to shine over all the world and over all the nations. And the time is coming for that. In the final three verses, the Lord now then, in a way, provides a summary of this these last passage. He restates, essentially, what he has just promised in verse 7 through 21. And so for our fourth point, we conclude that the time is coming for the Lord's word to be fulfilled. That all that God has said in verse 7 through, uh, 7 through 21 up to this point, all of it, because it's God's word, is going to come to pass. And in three verses, he basically summarizes uh, what he's just said. Three things are going to happen that God says. The Lord says, first of all, that Israel will endure before me. Israel will endure before me. This is the nation of Israel. Again, there's a future for the national Israel. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, verse 22, which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. He's speaking to Israel, you, yours. The Lord is going to deliver Israel from their sin and their enemies. And just like the new heavens and new earth that we looked at a few chapters ago is going to be established by the Lord, it's going to continue forever, the Israelites' offspring and the Israel's name will endure forever. Israel is never going to be, once again, cast out from the land. Israel is never again going to be uh, forsaken. Never again is Israel as a nation going to rebel against him. They will walk and abide and dwell before the Lord whom they serve forever. That's their future. That's God's promise to them. The Lord will deliver Israel. Secondly, in verse 23, the Lord says that the nations will bow down before me forever. Verse 23, and it shall be from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Basically, all mankind is going to come and see God's glory, and they're going to bow down and worship. They're going to worship him. Just as uh, the New Testament tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone's going to worship him one day, because God has said so in his word. And then lastly, the third thing I want to point out, the Lord says that those who transgressed against me will be judged forever. It's uh, striking that this verse is, is how Isaiah ends. 
And then, it's, then he writes, or he reveals through Isaiah, then they will go forth, that is, the people who believe, who come to worship the Lord, all the nations, all the Israelites who worship him, will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. The end. The Lord basically tells us here that he will judge sinful mankind. That just as there is a salvation and the privilege of worship of God forever for those who believe in him, there is a a judgment that is coming, a judgment upon sinful men. And there is some way in the future where those who worship God will be able to see those who basically did not worship God, those who rebelled or transgressed or sinned against God. They will see their corpses basically suffering in eternal fiery torment. We often refer to this as hell. And by the end of Revelation 22, it's called the lake of fire. The idea, uh, uh, this will be an eternal fiery torment. The terms there, the worm will not die, fire will not be quenched, describe basically what happens uh, in this play. What kind of, and as you know, when there is corpses, uh, what happens to corpses? Corpses are eventually decay, and eventually... Worms come along, and they, they'll eat that body, and they'll, they'll just, you know, just go through and eat body, just as they eat all animal flesh. There's this idea that there's this a corruption of our body that's going to happen. But the worms that eat, eventually worms all have a short lifespan. They live and they die. But these worms will just basically keep eating and never die. So there's this eternal, constant corruption, decay of one's body. Can you imagine just being eaten alive by worms is the picture and not only that, but there's this torment that's going to be pictured by a fire that will not be quenched. A fire that will, uh, <clears throat> that will constantly burn. And we all of us know what it feels like to be burnt probably at one time or another. Touch something that's too hot. But there will be a constant fire and our bodies, uh, hopefully not our bodies, but the bodies of those who, who have rebelled against, so they will suffer internal fiery torment and the fire will never go out. And when we hear stories like this, we hear this kind of description, it is sometimes difficult to grasp. It's a terrible torment for you ever. It'll be an abhorrence to all mankind then, and it should be an abhorrence even as we think about it today. It should be something that we would not wish upon our, even our worst enemies. That we would wish that we could, that would motivate us to want to save anyone from this eternal destiny. Now, today, it's, hell is not so popular. Some may even doubt that it's reality. I saw some Wall Street Journal article saying, oh, do we even need hell today? <laughs> um, but if you believe in Jesus, you must believe in hell. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God who speaks truth, and he is true and why he came, then you must believe what Jesus believed. Jesus in Mark chapter 9, verse 42 to 48, quoted this very last verse. This last verse on it three times. Three times to emphasize the reality of hell. For there the worm will not die, and the fire will not be quenched. And so the choice is clear. Even as we, we've had this summary, how you respond in this life to Jesus the Messiah will determine your future when Christ comes. If you repent and believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you will worship him forever. But if you reject him, if you believe in whatever you think is right, then 
the scriptures tell you tell us that you will suffer forever and God does not lie the time is coming for his word to come to pass but thankfully it is not too late if you've been with us, you've heard through the, you've been listening to Isaiah with us over the last three years, and you're not yet sure about whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ, or if you've been seeking the Lord, I pray that you would want, wait another day. Because the passage ends very clearly. The destiny is hell for those who do not believe, who have transgressed against him. And how do you know that there is a hell? Because to deliver us, God sent his only begotten son, the perfect son of God, and he sent him to come and take on the form of a man to empty himself of all his deity, or all of his privileges of being of heaven and heaven, not to empty himself of his deity, and to come and then to die on the cross, not for his sins, but for all our sins. God killed his son on the cross because there's a place called hell, because there's a judgment that's coming for all sin. And he, but he placed his wrath upon his son so that anyone, everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's why, there, that's why God's son came. I pray and, ask and plead with you that you would believe today, upon him today. Well, let's end. Let's conclude. How do you end such a glorious book? There's no fitting glory. <laughs> um, conclusion, I was thinking. But let me end with this. Let me make my attempt. And then I simply ask, end with a question. Isaiah's a vision. What vision will shape how we live here and now? What is the vision of the future that is shapes how you live here and now? We all work for companies and we all work for, even in churches, organizations. There is a vision statement. It's a picture of something that we'd like to see happen in the future that guides what we do now, what, we're gonna, what steps we're going to take. But God, in his word, has given us not the words of men, a vision not created by men, but a vision from him himself. A vision of the future of what will take place, what will happen in the world, what will happen to you and me, whether we believe or whether we do not. And may this vision of the future for the people of God, both Jews and Gentiles, a vision centered upon the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the, mess, the Son of God, the servant, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, Jesus Christ. May his, this, this vision that is centered upon his coming, not only to pour himself out to death for us, to, to justify the many, but then who will come again one day to judge, deliver, and establish his kingdom of peace on earth. May this vision of the future shape us in how we think and how we live today so that when we're thinking about what matters in this world, the things that we get all angry, upset about, There's many reasons if you, just, if you follow our world today. People are upset about all sorts of things. But a lot of these things are simply temporal things. They will perish, by the, they'll perish even in the next few years. They'll be forgotten. 
But what matters is eternal. What matters is the souls of everyone in this room. You will one day be worshiping the Lord or you'll be being tormented by the Lord. The same with all the souls around the world. One day, Lord's the vision is clear. He's going to come. He's going to call all the nations to himself, gather them to himself. I pray that you and I would be among those who would live for his kingdom, not our own. That we'd seek to store up not treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. Treasures that we cannot lose. And that we would store up the greatest treasure of all, that we delight in the greatest treasure of all, the pearl of great price, that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, whom we've learned about in his word. And let us worship him. Let's serve him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time in your word, and thank you for the book of Isaiah. And we pray that you would cause us to be a people who do not forget that you are coming again, that we remember that the time is coming when Christ shall return. And he will come in fire, he will come to judge, he will come to deliver Israel, but he will also gather all the nations, shine his glory upon them. And Lord, we thank you that we who believe upon Jesus Christ will have a part in that kingdom, future kingdom. We pray that we would do, that we would live in light of this vision that we receive, that it would shape the things that we treasure, the things that we go about doing, the things, even how we go about doing the things that we do. Because we know that ultimately what matters, what lasts, is you, is your word, and the souls of men and women. You and your word do not change. But where the souls of men and women go, Father, there is still, there is still time. Lord, help us be faithful. Help us to make sure we believed and have turned from sin and turned to you. Father, help us to see our friends, our family, our neighbors in light of this vision. And to remember that the time is coming. Glorify yourself, Lord, as your word goes forth and changes us. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. God bless you, you're dismissed.